I hope I turned my mic on. I did. Yay. <laughs> Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you all once again this morning. Uh, I do hope that you come uh, with an eagerness to dig into the Word of God. Uh, and if you are, if you have, uh, with that in mind, I encourage you to join me in turning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Uh, because we are sort of right now in the middle of a sermon series, we're just looking at the life of Jesus as it's revealed in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things you'll notice about Jesus as Luke tells his story is it's revealed to us that Jesus is a teacher. Uh, he, Luke has already told us a couple of times that you know Jesus went was going from place to place, teaching and preaching to the people. And the people were amazed at the things that he said. And uh, we can't look at sort of all of Jesus' teaching throughout the entire Gospel of Luke. Uh, there's lots of teachings, lots of parables that Jesus gave to the people. But I thought we should at least focus on at least one sample of the kind of Jesus' teaching that Jesus gave. And that, I, I've chose Luke 6, verses 17 to 49 as an example of the kind of teaching that Jesus gave to the people. It's just a small glimpse of the kind of stuff Jesus was saying that was creating so much excitement among the people. And it's a long passage, uh, we, you know, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read all of it at the beginning, but we'll, we'll work our way through it. But I'm just going to read enough of it just to sort of set the scene um, before we begin. So Luke 6, beginning in verse 17, we're going to read to verse 23 before we jump in. Um, and we're told, and, and he came down with them, and he stood on a level place. With a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were, were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and, and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so the fathers did to the prophets. Let's pray. Father God, um, we come with expectation here this morning that, Lord, we would hear from you through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we invite you into our presence and even more into our hearts as we desire to, to dig into your word and have you speak uh, into our hearts. Um, yeah, we come with anticipation. Uh, we come knowing that you are alive and that you are among us and that, Lord, your power uh, is flowing. So Lord, uh, we just want to commit all that we are in this place to you uh, in this moment, that we would hear from you and learn from you, and that Lord, in your gentleness, you would teach us and shape us and renew us uh, through the word of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just as an exercise, before we begin, I want you to think just in your own mind of a great preacher. Uh, 
who's a great preacher sort of in your mind? And, you know, you probably can do that. You probably have somebody in mind or maybe even a couple of people, you know, D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, uh, even more sort of current day. You can turn on your radio and hear guys like Charles Stanley, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll. There's lots of sort of great preachers around today. Who thought of me? No, I won't. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, yeah, my mom. That's about the only person. But now take a minute and try to think of a great sermon. For most of us, we try to sort of narrow it to that scope. Uh, you know, our thoughts sort of slow to a trickle. And, you know, I can think of maybe three or four sort of famous sermons that other people may have heard about. And it's just, it's just hard. But, you know, one sermon that may come to mind is actually the one right before us today. Uh, we call it the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, and it's one that Jesus gave to his disciples. And it's kind, of like, it's kind of like the little brother to the Sermon on the Mount that's found in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, you can find teachings from this one in, in that one as well. Because one of my seminary professors said, Jesus was a traveling preacher. He probably preached either the same message or a similar message in many different times, many different places. But you know what? Every time Jesus, or nearly every time that Jesus preached, what people, some people don't realize, he always preached on the same topic. He would always preach on the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of people who don't realize that the kingdom of God was Jesus' main topic of his preaching throughout his ministry. In fact, even before Jesus, when John the Baptist came to prepare the way, the Bible tells us that his purpose was, in Mark 1, verse 15, uh, his purpose was to announce the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So when Jesus began his ministry, he proclaimed in Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 9, we're told Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when the disciples began to get trained and decide, Jesus decides, I'm going to send the disciples out uh, to take their turn to preach. In Luke 9, while well, he instructed them to tell people, uh, Luke 9, verse 2, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And you know what? Even after Jesus' resurrection, what does he talk about for 40 days before his ascension? Well, Acts 1, verse 3 says, he showed himself to these men and he gave many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Of God. You see, the kingdom of God was Jesus' main thing. In fact, it's mentioned something like 80 times in the New Testament alone. Because the kingdom of God is not just part of our faith, it's the essence of our faith. The call to salvation itself is a call to a life in the kingdom. And you know, I think even hearing that though, I think there's some times when any of us would admit, that understanding this idea of the kingdom of God is not always easy because it's kind of a funny thing in the Bible. The Bible tells us that, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. It means it's near, but it's also still to come. It's future, but it's also present. And it doesn't help that much of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God was done in parables. So the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and it's like a pearl and a net and a servant and a sower, which are lovely images, but they're not necessarily self-apparent. In fact, even Jesus' own disciples sometimes scratched their heads when Jesus spoke in parables and they had to go back to him and say, Jesus, like, what are you talking about? 
explain to us what you mean when you're talking about the kingdom of God. Even I think the very name can be confusing because sometimes it's called the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's the kingdom of heaven. Some call it the kingdom of Christ. Sometimes it's just the kingdom. So what is this whole kingdom business really about? Well, I think to sort of put it simply, a description that I kind of like is to have a kingdom, you need a king. So the kingdom of God is anywhere that Christ rules uncontested as king. And that's what Chuck Swindoll means when he says, the kingdom of God is God's authority over our lives. And we know that one day, future, when, when time is fulfilled and history has run its course, that will be everywhere. All of creation will fall under the kingdom of God. But for right now, at least, in this world that we're living in, the kingdom of God mainly exists in the hearts and the lives of Jesus' followers. And I do want you to hear that. As believers, we very much are the kingdom of God here on earth. And this sermon that Jesus gives us here in the passage before us is one of his most complete teachings on this subject. Some have even called it, uh, along with the Sermon on the Mount, the Constitution to the Kingdom of Heaven. Jesus here is telling his followers, this is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Or in other words, this is what being a disciple of mine looks like if I'm truly king of your life. And there's a lot going on here. In fact, even as we speed through this, there's more to this passage that can be said today. In fact, there's more than probably a month worth of sermons can kind of cover. So we're, it's, it's going to be a very broad overview of what Jesus says here. But as we sort of suss out the broad points, I think there are at least six lessons here in this passage that Jesus wants his followers to understand about the kingdom of God. These are six things that we need to know about a life that is surrendered to Jesus. And the first thing I think that is obvious is that the kingdom of God contains what I would call radical values. Radical in that the values of the kingdom are so radically different than the world that we are living in and that we know. In fact, just look at verse 20 of our passage. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That's crazy. I mean, so I actually remember, that this is many years ago now, but my first, not just my first year in university, I think it was my very first day at university in my very first class. It was 9 a.m., and it was chemistry 101. And I remember showing up for that class, my backpack on my back, pencil in my hand. And I remember, you know, I was excited. I'm like, I have this made. I'm going to be so good at this because I did great in chemistry in high school. And, uh, I, you know, I figured I know how all of this stuff works. I feel bad for the rest of these guys. <laughs> but then the professor walks in. And I will always remember the first words that came out of his mouth. He said, 
forget everything that you learned in high school chemistry because it's all wrong. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this class is not going to be as much fun as I thought it was going to be. And I was right. I think that was the last time I ever thought I was good at chemistry. But his point was that in high school, chemistry is so oversimplified that it's not a true reflection of what chemical reactions actually look like. Now picture Jesus. He's standing before his disciples. And as he gives this sermon, he's basically saying, guys, forget everything you thought you knew about living in the world. Because it's all wrong. Because just listen to a few things that he says. He tells them, rich are the poor. Happy are the sad. Full are the hungry. He tells them to rejoice when people revile you. I mean, does that make any sense? Later on, he says, do not judge. And yet people must have thought, but Jesus, judging is our favorite. We love doing that. Love your enemies. That's got to be a typo. Turn the other cheek. But Jesus, how do we get even with them if we're turning the other cheek? Look at the woes. Woe to the full. Woe to those who laugh. That doesn't sound a lot like woe. Woe to the rich. Uh, pardon, like back up, Jesus. Can you imagine? Imagine a friend of yours wins the lottery. So you call him up and say, hey, man, I just heard the bad news. I'm so sorry. I mean, is there anything I can do to help you get through this tough time? Woe to the rich. I mean, somebody listening to Jesus say those kind of things must have thought he was crazy. Because that's simply not how the world works. I mean, what world is Jesus living in? All right. This isn't about the world. This is about life in the kingdom of God. Because it is truly it's so different. In fact, some people call it the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom, because it is so completely opposite in so many ways, so radically different from everything that we know and think we understand about the world. But it's not only sort of, that's not the only radical thing about the kingdom of God. Because next we see that the kingdom of God is also a place of radical love. As Jesus continues in verse 27, he says, but I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus is telling us that in the kingdom of God, we are to love one another. Love is what should define our relationship with other people. And it, it's a radical love. This is not just about pretending to be nice to people. or you know, It's not about smiling on the outside to people when you're gritting your teeth on the inside. This love is real. The love Jesus is talking about is a love that calls us to sacrifice. It's a love that calls us to put other people ahead of ourselves other needs before our own. This is a love that seeks out the very best for another person, no matter what the cost. This is a love that offers people grace, even when they hurt us or let us down, even love towards people who are our enemies. 
This is a love that should be the true mark of followers of Jesus. Because it's a love that is a reflection of the love that God himself has shown to us. The kingdom of God is a place where people are to treat each other with radical love. And the kingdom of God is also a place of radical holiness. Reading from verse 37, Jesus continues saying, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus is telling his disciples they need to worry about their own holiness. They need to worry about the the, the state of their own hearts. They need to deal with their own sin in their own lives. Because God's call to his people is not just to holiness, it's to radical holiness. I once read an article by a woman named uh, Natalie Gable. The title of the article was, What If 99.9% Was Good Enough? Listen to this. She says, in North America, if 99.9% was good enough, 12 babies a day would go to the wrong parents. Every year, 2 million documents would be lost by the IRS. 291 pacemakers would be performed incorrectly. 20,000 incorrect drug prescriptions would be written and 114,000 mismatched pairs of shoes would be shipped from factories. You see, 99.9 sounds pretty good, but when you really look at it, that 0.1% that you overlook can actually have some pretty significant um, impacts. And when it comes to holiness, Jesus doesn't want us to sort of settle for being 90% holy or 95% holy or even 99.9% holy. God wants us to be no less than 100% holy. So why is the Bible so insistent on holiness and so hard on sin? And this is an important lesson. It's because in the kingdom of God, remember where Christ sits as king? In the kingdom of God, sin is the usurper for the throne. Sin is the one thing in our lives that keeps the true king from taking up residence. Sin in our life is actually, it challenges the authority of God. Sin is actually the opposite of what life in the kingdom looks like. So we pursue holiness. And Jesus says we don't just do it for bragging rights so we can look down on other people. We don't, it's not for the sake of competition so that, you know, our lives, we can feel better about it, you know, because we look at other people who are doing worse than us. Jesus says, even here, we don't do it to get all judgy. We don't pursue holiness so we can point at other people and say, look at how bad they're doing compared to me. No, Jesus says we actually do it because that's how we get into the kingdom. We enter the kingdom of God through repentance. Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, sin has no place in the kingdom. And Jesus died to save us from sin because the kingdom of God is this kingdom of radical holiness where we get serious about taking care of our own sin. And that's an important as we come to the fourth thing that I think Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God. And that is that the kingdom of God is a place of radical transformation. Look at Luke 6, beginning in verse 43, where he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. For a good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And I think Jesus is telling his followers here that when you're part of the kingdom of God, it changes your heart. And because of that, it changes your life. And it doesn't just change your life on what you do on Sunday mornings. It, it changes a person completely, entirely. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And that change happens because we're being more, made more and more and more like Jesus when we're living in the kingdom. In fact, back up a few verses, Luke 6, 40. Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. You see, in the kingdom, Christ-likeness is our goal. And you know, do you know how some citizens from some countries, they share a resemblance? You can always tell where they're from. You know, whether it's their culture or their food or their language or their accents, whatever. You know, citizens from the same place often have things in common that you can tell where they're from. Well, for citizens of the kingdom of God, we have something in common. And what we share is a resemblance of the image of Christ. And when people see Christ-likeness in us, when they see our character being transformed, when they see us acting in a new way, when they see, that's when they know that something has happened, that something is going on deep inside of us. That's how they know that we are citizens of heaven. Which is actually something else that Jesus teaches us here about the kingdom of God. And that's that the, this, the uh, blah, blah, blah. he teaches us that citizens of the kingdom bear a radical witness to the world. Just as a fruit of a tree reveals the kind of tree that it is, the fruit of our lives says much about the kingdom that we belong to. One of my favorite stories is about a little girl who was driving home with her family from church. When she turned to her mother and she said, Mommy, there's something about the preacher's message this morning that I don't understand. So her mom said, well, tell me, dear, what is it that you don't understand? And the little girl replied, well, the pastor said that God is big, that he's bigger than we are. In fact, he's so big that he could hold the whole world in his hands. Is that true? And her mother replied, well, yes, honey, that's true. But then she continued, but mommy, he also said that God comes to live inside of us when we believe in Jesus as our Savior. Is that true? And again, the mother assured the little girl, well, what the pastor said was true. And with a puzzled look on her face, the little girl then said, but mommy, if God is bigger than us and he lives in us, wouldn't he kind of show through? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly the point. 
Jesus says to his followers, if you're part of the kingdom, people will see the evidence of faith in your life. People will see in you God showing through in your life. And this is important for us to understand. Um, because you know what? Even though as believers we're part of the kingdom of God, we all know that we are called to live out our lives of faith in this world. You know, kingdom living is actually right now done right where life happens for all of us. And all of the stuff that Jesus is talking about in our passage today, it's meant to be taken everywhere that we go. We do kingdom living when we're at work, when we're out with our friends, when we go to the movies, when we're Instagramming or Facebooking or, you know, when we're at school or the library or at the park. It happens when you're with your neighbors. It happens when you're getting together with your relatives, even your mother-in-law. Happens when you're doing your hobbies and your recreation. It happens in your marriage and your family and your friendships and in your thoughts and in your desires. Everything, everywhere, in every place. We need to let people see the difference that Christ has made in our lives. We need to let people see a glimpse of the kingdom of God. We need to reveal to others the fruit of transformed lives. We are radical witnesses for the kingdom. Showing the world around us how different we truly are. Which brings us to the final thing that I think we can learn about the kingdom of God from our passage this morning. And that is, the kingdom of God is a place of radical surrender. Look at verse 46. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, 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 and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who, who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. And to me, I... I don't think you can understand the rest of Jesus' teaching if you don't understand this part. Because I'll be honest with you, even as I was sort of working my way through this list of these radical things that the kingdom of God entails, I think the one question that I kept asking myself is, how can any one of us actually do this? I mean, how can we hold such radical values in a world where those values are so different? How can we love people with a radical love when our natural instincts are just so opposite? How do we live out a radical holiness while we know we live in this world that's a cesspool of sin and temptation and we are but flesh? How can we be transformed when most of us can't even change a tire, let alone our entire lives? But here's the good news that Jesus reveals. Is that in all of those things, we don't have to. Because this kingdom living is not something that we do or is done in our strength. This is the work of God in our lives working through us. This is the power of God on display. Because in God's kingdom, God is the foundation. God's the source source of life. He's the agent of change. He's the source of our strength. It's God who sanctifies us. He's the God who guides us. He's God, God who goes before us. God who protects us. God is the one who helps us stand. 
God is the one who brings transformation within us, and nothing that we go through in life is beyond him. The truth is we can rely on God in every situation in life. And when trials arrive and we go through difficulty, we can trust in God and all of his promises. God himself is our foundation for living and the only foundation that will not crumble beneath our feet. Because you know what? If the foundation of your life is your family, what do you do when a drunk driver takes them away? If your foundation of your life is your career, what do you do when the boss gives you a pink slip? If your foundation of your life is your good health, what happens when the doctor tells you that it's chronic? The foundation of your life is your possessions and the stuff that you have. What happens when somebody breaks in and steals? If the foundation of yourself is your own self, what happens when death claims you for its own? You know, all those poor foundation upon which many people choose to build their lives can quickly slip away like shifting sand. In an instant, you can go from feeling secure to losing all hope because your life was shaken and your foundation has failed. Faith in Christ is to be the foundation that we, as citizens of the kingdom, that we build our lives upon. And that's why we need to seek him and seek him alone. Jesus even says to his followers in that other sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And the key word there is first. You see, the kingdom is not something that, that should come second in our lives, and certainly not third or fourth or fifth or whatever. But I think that's why so many Christians struggle with actually living out their faith. Because they fail to seek the kingdom first. And their loyalties are divided and their focus is, is wrong. Because they're tempting to have it both ways. And they're tempting to try to serve two masters. They're trying to live their life with one foot in heaven and the other firmly planted on earth. A lot of people come to Jesus and like what he says and think, well, you know, I'm just going to try to add Jesus to my already busy life and hope that maybe he doesn't, you know, demand too much of my attention that it's going to distract me. But the truth is that living like that, it'll drive you crazy. And you can't do it. We have to choose. And we have to choose to put Christ first if we're truly going to be living in the kingdom. I love a quote by C.S. Lewis who once said, the only thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. If it's really true, then it deserves everything you got. You either believe that Christianity is true and you let Christ determine the rest of your life, or you should just forget it and go and do whatever you want to do. And when Jesus spoke these words to his followers, it wasn't just another sermon. It was a call to radical surrender, radical obedience, radical allegiance to himself. It was call, a call to be citizens of a new kingdom and to be a part of a new reality and a new life where Christ is king. And if we live in that place, if we seek that kingdom, we soon discover that surrendering 
is not learning to settle for less. It's actually learning to accept more from Christ. That's what living is all about. And you know, nothing would ever be the same for these disciples once they learned to take hold of this amazing truth about the kingdom of God. So let me just ask this morning in closing, how are you seeking the kingdom of God today? Because I know that we live in a world of someday people. You know, people all over the world are waiting for someday to come. Someday my life will be different. Someday I'll get caught up at work. Someday I'll earn enough money. I won't have to worry about paying those bills. Someday I'll get into better physical shape. And a lot of people say someday, someday I'll have, finally have enough time to deal with my relationship with God and enjoy more of his goodness. Someday I'll have time to worry about all that kingdom stuff. But unfortunately for so many people, someday never comes. And seeking the kingdom of God should not be something we wait on. So today can be your day. Today you can take your place as a citizen of of the kingdom. Today you can move from your old life to a new one. Today you can know God's strength. Today you can be forgiven. Today you can begin to be transformed. If you are ready to surrender and trust Christ as your king. Because that's what the kingdom of God is all about. And that's what brings us once again to the communion table this morning. And if you want, uh, I guess this is a sermon bonus point, because this table, communion, represents the radical fellowship of the citizens of the kingdom. It's this beautiful picture where men and women from every tribe, every nation, every language, every place on earth have all come to this table and become one as citizens of the kingdom of God. And it's the truth of this table that binds us together as the family of God. It's a reminder of all that Jesus did on our behalf to make us his own and give us a place. It's our kingdom feast that we celebrate together until Jesus comes. And my encouragement to you this morning is, as you take the bread, as you take the cup, that you would truly take hold of Christ himself, knowing your king, surrendering your life, and seeking his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, I think as we just listen to Jesus' words in our passage today, Lord, we realize you have called us to a new life, to a life abundant, to a life in the kingdom of God. And Lord, that is the fullest and the best life that is possible. That's the kind of life that you actually created us for in the first place, before sin took it all away. Because it is life with you. And Lord, the differences could not be more amazing and more profound between life in the kingdom and life here on this earth. And I pray that, Lord, we would seek it that we would live it, that we would celebrate the kingdom of God in our hearts as we surrender our lives to you. And Lord, as we come together again as the people of God, um, as citizens of the kingdom to to take communion, I pray that you would just, you, you would bless our time at the table, that you would prepare our hearts to both remember and reflect truly on Christ and the cross. Remembering that he died to save us, he died to forgive us, and he he died uh, to give us a place in the kingdom. And Lord, we invite 
you to join us as we celebrate communion together, as we seek first your kingdom in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.